Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So welcome back to the Science of Sport podcast. Uh, myself, Mike Finch, along with this Professor Ross Tucker, our sports scientist who is regularly with us, as you all of you know, who are regular followers of our podcast. We've been off air for a while as we've uh, been traveling around the world, well, Ross has anyway, and I've also been doing a fair bit of traveling myself within the confines of the South African uh, situation. So we'll get into some of the things that we've been up to over the last uh, couple of weeks and uh, some big themes we're going to be talking about today, most of all around performances and uh, those performances that we've seen both on the track of athletics and also on the road of ultra distance running. We'll talk a little bit about some of the things that's happening in world mountain biking. We'll talk about the Tour de France that's coming up and some of the things we've seen from the early season events in cycling and uh, kind of give you a bit of an idea of some of the things around tennis of course because the French Open happened uh, just a couple of weeks ago and uh, remarkable history and uh, and memorable moments happening there particularly for Novak Djokovic. Anyway so let's uh, kick things off a little bit and I want to start off things by talking a little bit about what happened to me this last weekend and I happened to be the race announcer at the Comrades Marathon which is uh, about 18,000 athletes and I actually wrote my Ed's letter in uh, Runner's World um, just a couple of hours ago from now and uh, I talked about the fact that during the COVID time, the Comrades Marathon and the Two Oceans Marathon, which are the two biggest ultra-distance events in the world, not only in South Africa, but any of you involved in the world of ultra-distance running will probably know the Comrades Marathon, that when you look at the Comrades Marathon during COVID, they cancelled it in 2020, 2021. Financially, it was in huge difficulty. Sponsors had pulled out. I really did think it was in very shaky ground. And having been back this year, it was a remarkable event. And I wrote about the fact that it is despite the distance. Now, for those of you who are not au fait with what the distances of the Comrades Marathon are, it's essentially the Comrades Marathon distance is two marathons back to back and a couple of extra Ks added on the end. So this year's distance was 87.7 kilometers. And it's an amazing race because it's been going for 102 years. Um, Obviously, there's been some races that haven't been held over the World Wars and of course the COVID break. But it's got this amazing history it's changed in the way that it is it, it works now because you think, well, the demographic of South Africa has changed the way that it's running. Back in the old days, back in the apartheid days, it was a, an event mainly run and the heroes of running were mainly white guys and girls. And now it is very much a black dominated event. And that's great for the sport because it's attracting the right kind of people into the event as well. And it's become a really reflective of South African society, which was one of the things that I picked up on this year. But what's amazing about it is that this year we saw two records and those two records weren't just broken by just a few minutes. They were absolutely smashed. And I don't think anybody 10 years ago could have thought about the times that were run at this year's Commerce Marathon. So consider this. The race is run Pienemansburg, which is inland of KZN. 
and it's run all the way down to Durban, you'd think, well, it's mostly downhill. In, a, in effect, the amount of climbing that happens on the race is almost similar to the uprun that they have. So every second year it runs one way and every other year it runs the other way. This year was a downrun. And uh, the record went from 5.18 time to a 5, just under 5.14, 5 hours 14. And that difference, when I was speaking to Bruce Fordyce, who's probably the most famous comrades runner of all, he won it nine times in the, in the 80s. He, so I said to him, well, I still think 5.24 was a good time because Bruce had established that downrun record of 5.24 that lasted for something like 20 years. Suddenly, these records have just tumbled. When 5.18 was broken by David Khatebe, everybody thought that is never going to be broken for a long, long time. Suddenly, we have a 5.14. Same thing happened in the women's event. Chad Estain, who is um, probably South Africa's greatest ever ultra-distance runner that we've ever seen in this country. She really has a record for the uprun. And then she went and broke the down and record. And what's significant about that is that record had stood for 35 years. The record of Frith van der Merve had stood at 5 hours, 54 minutes and 43 seconds. Gerda did 5 hours, 44 minutes. So it almost 10 minutes off the time. And I know Ross and I, we were, we were just chatting um, over WhatsApp and that sort of thing, talking about the significance of that. But there is some reality because the technology is coming through in those ultra distance events. But the question is, to what extent is it? Yeah, so f first of all, it's worth pointing out, and quite an important asterisk, is that the, the comet's distance isn't the same every time. Yes. And this year was a particularly short race, and I don't understand why. But anyway, <laughs> I, I don't know. Is it, do they just go around the block sometimes and other times they no, come across? No, because, well, there's a variety of reasons. So the previous couple of years has been held at the finished venue as a different yeah, place. Yeah, this time they moved back to the cricket they, stadium. Which is where it traditionally is. But right. often roadworks, particularly around Durban and Peter okay. yeah. often change the route slightly. Yeah. Um, but they're claiming this is, the, this is the shortest one ever, but there has been a distance of 86 before. Yeah. But it was certainly one of the shortest ones. And so I didn't even, because I sort of watched it with one eye and no ears. Um, <laughs> but the commentary <laughs> off. Yeah, because I still... Some of the commentary is good, but some of it I can't, I can't. But anyway, the coverage is definitely better than it used to be since Supersport. So that's going to help the race a lot, I yeah. think. It's good for the race. Um, so what the, 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 the men's race nutted this year, how much shorter than the record, the previous record was it, and women? So the previous record, the distance was 89 kilometers. So yeah. a kilometer and 1 3.2, yeah. Yeah. And the women's was 1.9k shorter, I think. That's what I heard. Mm, not quite sure what the 89, because that record, that initial record was established in 1989. Yeah. And I can't find out how long the race was. Because <laughs> it's quite race. an important detail. It, it it's is, like, yes. <laughs> it's it's like almost if, like they've ignored it. It's like if, yeah, because they just go on as if it's the same every year. Because yeah. if, the, you know, if the distance was like 1.5, 1.9k's less, that's 2%. That's mm. the equivalent of a 1,500 meter being able to run 1,470. Yeah. And stopping 30 meters before the normal line and going, look at me, well, record holder by yeah. two and a half seconds well yes <laughs> yeah, obviously but over the distance so, i mean it all levels out because when you're talking about an 87 or an 89 kilometer event yes i suppose in, in the scheme of things it does it seems like there's a lot of time a lot of distance that you can use to make up yeah uh, in, it's, not anyways, as, it's, it's not as marginal as that 1500 meters it is important about. context because yeah. breaking it by four minutes when you've had to run one and a half k less is so, yeah. so meaningful you know but yeah. but but regardless the number of men and women actually who were super fast because admittedly stain wins the women's race by a lot mm. but the women in second and third were way faster than your normal second and third places as way well faster. Like, and then on the men's side the top three come in all under the old world re uh, old comrades record. Correct. Granted, its distance issues. 
So the depth and the quality of performance tells us that there's yeah. something more to it than just distance. So the second woman was the third fastest in history. You're right. And the third woman was the fifth, sixth fastest yeah, in history. Yeah, and that second one was only a couple of minutes outside. And again, mm-hmm. if, the, if the course is shorter, then you've got to interpret that. There should actually be a, a reference standard, comrades, over 88K that they can express the record relative to. But anyway, that, let's not go there. Um, so yes, there's no doubt that the shoe is making a difference. And we saw that last year as well, where there was equally fast times. And I think the year before, well, that was the one that would have been canceled because of COVID. Yeah. So there's no question the shoes are making a difference. And why wouldn't they? They made a difference in the marathon. They've made a difference on the roads in the half marathon. They're making a difference in the track, as we will shortly discover. Mm -hmm. So why would they not make a difference? And it's difficult to put a number to the advantage, but I would say a conservative estimate is 1.5% to 2%. Mm -hmm. Some athletes are getting much more. Some unlucky ones are getting less than that. But if you applied a 1.5% to 2% correction factor over six hours, Mm. you know, 360 minutes, that's a fair chunk that you're going to improve performance by. So I don't think anything that we saw at the weekend can't be explained by footwear technology. Well, just looking at, just to stop you there, I just looked it up because I should have looked it up before our podcast, but actually the distance where the men's previous record was established was 89.3 kilometers. So essentially that's 1.6 kilometers in total. So it's a mile. Yeah, and that's five, yeah, five yeah. to six minutes at the pace that they run. Right. You know? yeah, yeah. And so over five hours and 20 minutes at 2%, that's six minutes. Yeah. That's the shoe benefit. Six yes. minutes. If you get two, if any of those top three runners got, got 2%, they are six minutes faster today mm-hmm. than they would be today. This is the key point in the old shoes. Yes. And that's why we spoke as far back as 2020, I don't know when it was, about recalibration. Mm. We're taking the same human being changing their footwear, and the times now have a different meaning. Mm. And that's just the reality of it, you know. And mm. it's, the same, it's the same when we analyze marathons and we see a guy run a sub-60 second half marathon, as we saw in London this year, when we see guys breaking 202, 203. Well, that, that 201 something is worth 203 from three, four years ago before yeah. he had the benefit of those shoes. Mm. And the same thing on the women's side. There are now a number of women going 216 or faster. Mm. That was a 218 to 219 five years back. Mm. The humans haven't changed. The shoes have. And is I mean, other than just the the performance benefit, let's just talk specifically. And for those of you who have listened to our podcast before, we've obviously touched on this subject a number of times, um, way back two years ago when these shoes were really starting to make an impact. But some research is suggesting not only are the shoes better for training because there is less impact on the body. In other words, you can train for longer without the same level of damage to your legs. But also, when you're actually running races, there is a comfort, different mm. comfort level. So it's not just the fact that they have carbon plates and cushioning that can propel you forward. There is a there is a cushioning effect and there is a comfort effect that essentially makes the shoes more efficient. Yeah, and you can see in a down run of comrades, because those yes. you don't know, I mean, if you've ever tried to run downhill for even 10Ks, the limiting factor is that your joints actually just stop you from loading them. Oh, yes. They start to reject <laughs> your, you, they start to reject gravity. And so when you do that for 60, 70K, and every Comrades Marathon runner you'll talk to will tell you that from 50, 60K onwards, it's like your legs are just sensitized and you, mm. you just cannot go faster. The guy who came second, the Dutch fella, Piet someone. Piet uh, Beishman. He discovered that. I, I think he, he was actually pretty fresh, but his legs were very tired and sore. So mm. he couldn't go faster. Mm. But if you have the benefit of sh- shoes that cushion the landing, I reckon it's worth 
a, a significant advantage at mm. the end of a long distance race. Well, Vosma actually finished three seconds behind, which was the second closest history, second closest finish in the history of the comrades. Bet he regrets that it's not one point six k longer because he might have had him if it yeah. had been another. Yeah, but, yeah. but who knows? I also no, heard the winner. is a perfect science. Heard the winner was slowing down because he'd been told by his manager not to break the record by too much, so that he could go back in two years' time yes. and do it again. So that's a good business decision by the winner. But he made it. It did make for a more entertaining race than it may otherwise have been. But but anyway, back to the shoes. I, I, yeah, so I think there's an acute benefit that manifests in two ways. One is that the shoe reduces the energy cost of running, and because we pace ourselves up to that ceiling we can now go faster before we exceed it. The second point is that it acutely benefits us because it reduces the impact loading and the damage. And then the third thing is you can now do 10% more training at 10% higher intensities before damage becomes limiting. So on three fronts, the shoes are going to enhance performance. And so that's why we're seeing... I mean, everywhere you look, you see this. This if if aliens came to Earth and looked at numbers only, they would say something changed in humans between 2019 and 2022. Because well, they have to be quite a good scientist to work that out. <laughs> you just look at the they count how many miles we run under four minutes, and then say, "Wow, what happened in 2021?" Yeah. You know, we spoke earlier, like in the US, they stopped documenting sub four minute miles because what yeah. used to be a mid-teens a year is now happening almost as often in a month. Yeah. yeah. I saw a high school race the other where four boys went under four oh. in one race. In the in a Diamond League race recently, I think it was Rome, 13 men broke 13 minutes in a mm. 5K. Mm. That hasn't happened for 20-odd years. We'll get, we'll get to why that matters in a moment. So, yeah, yeah, like we've clearly been recalibrated and now we just have to accept that. Accept but that, yeah. what I find, I still find it frustrating because I still don't, think that that's what running was meant to reward is how you re- re- responded to shoes but the hysteria around records is never contextualized it almost need to understand mm-hmm. that now you know this 514 it's actually worth 517 519 521 whatever <laughs> so it's interesting and this is another discussion point that we could probably hypothesize for for, for ages is that they ran out of medals, silver medals. So this is an interesting so one. So the go. silver medal mm-hmm. is the one that is under seven and a half hours, of which around about, I would say, 1% of the field probably get a silver medal. So they ran out of medals. They haven't said why. Obviously, the the obvious conclusion is there were probably too many silver medals. Yeah. yeah that's, I'd, I'd say that so, that's another indication of humans, yeah. humans getting faster. Humans are getting faster. In other words, what we were talking about when we were actually at the race with a lot of the people that were there and the experts in the past were talking about how many of those 500 silver medalists were wearing super shoes. In other words, I don't think it's that much, to be honest, but maybe the 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 foam and the and the and that sort of thing has improved to an extent where it is assisting. I'm not sure that you would say 50% of that silver medal field be running in super shoes. I would doubt as many as that because the shoes are not readily available in South Africa as much as you can get them overseas. But more importantly, it was also the best finishing rate in the history of the Comrades Marathon. So 98.75% of starters, there were 16,000 starters, 14,900 finishers. They'd never had such a high percentage of finishers in the history of the race. That can't be explained by the shoes because the majority of the field will not have the top end shoes. That would probably just be explained by the fact that it was a shorter distance and conditions were pretty much ideal for running. It was cool. There was no wind. Mm. It was it was you know as good as you're going to get. Yeah, because five six years ago was the lowest finishing they'd ever had because it was 34 degrees at 11 in the morning and 97% humidity. So Yeah. yeah, if the one is true, then the reverse will also be. 
Mm. Makes sense. So it'd be me. interesting. I mean, if it was, I, I guess this is something that we'll never be able to do because it's it's uh, you'd have to build some sort of special learning algorithm because if you take the performances of those top athletes, you'd have to take into account the distance, which we talked about, the conditions, which we touched on, and the super shoes, and add all that together and think, well, all of those favorable conditions probably makes for a favorable and significant improvement in the record. Yes. Yeah. And so that would explain it. So I still, yeah. yeah. The, the distance is the big one. I, I still can't yeah. get over the fact that we just make these comparisons when yes. the race is literally 2% shorter or longer one year to the next. Well, it's interesting because we, <laughs> I mean, we talked a little bit about that when we was, you know, having our sort of couple of beers after the event, having watched the event. I was the race announcer there. And um, it, it's interesting because nobody wants to kind of talk about that elephant in the room, the fact that the, the distance is shorter because comrades wants to show that records are broken and it's a good story and there's no mention of the technology there's no mention of the distance as far as they're concerned if you've broken the record you've broken the record there's no context around that but i suppose that's marketing really isn't it i suppose a bunch of guys gonna go and run a 5k pb by stopping at 4.9 that's what's gonna happen that's the equivalent yeah yeah. well i have a course that i do uh, once a week in near near the in the in the forest near my house and i call it the honest eight because it's 7.57 kilometers (laughs) and i'm always quite quick over that eight but it's because it's not eight (laughs) (laughs) just start your watch a few hundred meters later and call it evens it's fine so let's i mean you've touched a bit on 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 the track and field side and Let's kind of get into the meat of the discussion we're going to have today because we talked about the Paris um, meeting, uh, the Diamond League meeting, which happened just on a few days back from when we did this, uh, we're doing this podcast. We had a world record in the 5,000 meters for women. We had a world record in the 3,000 meter steeplechase, which absolutely blew my mind that. And we had a world best in the men's two, two mile event because it isn't recognized as a world record. But that was a meeting. Now, there are so many things to discuss here. One of them is the shoe technology, mm. but there's also lots of other things to consider there, including the track. Yeah, I, th- I think the main one's the shoes, but mm. like, because again, like with comrades, I think what we know about the shoes, even on the track, since the, sh- the track spikes now integrate the same tech that was originally developed for the marathon sub two attempt. Mm. So they've got the carbon assist, yeah. basically. So they've got the stacked heel, not quite to the same height because mm. world athletics has created different height guidelines for track shoes compared to there was a time remember where the track bikes looked like the sprint the, the no like the road shoes because oh, yes. there was no restriction and partly that was what prompted world athletics to say no we've got to act a little bit here so they've created an upper limit for how high that stack can be mm. um, which then constrains the degree to which that spike can uh, the, the carbon plate can be curved and that probably mm. limits its benefit because in the road shoe you can make quite a lot that you know the, the foam is the scaffold in which the the plate sits mm. and so that's a little bit smaller but it's still there and the principle by which it worked on the roads is going to work on the track mm. and so unsurprisingly you're seeing records right from 100 meters all the way to 10,000 5,000 in this case and we spoke with Stuart McMillan, remember, in the lead up to mm. Tokyo, and he reckoned so one. The, just to give those of you who didn't listen to that, he's one of the, uh, America's best sprint coaches. Yeah, and yeah, he said one percent in a sprinter. Then we saw crazy fast hurdles times. Hurdles is an event, four hundred hurdles especially, but even the hundred, where your performance is very dependent on your stride length, not shortening. Mm-hmm because then you find yourself too far from the hurdle or too close to it, depending on your pattern. And so the extra bounce of these spikes would advantage hurdlers more than most, mm. you'd think. 
So yeah, we've seen evidence of it in the in the sprint events, but now you get the middle distance. And and for for patron followers, there was a podcast I released last week. When you're listening to this, where I spoke with Sean Engel, who's the journalist from the Guardian, and he was actually trackside in Paris, and we discussed the shoes and the technology and the potential contribution of doping versus tech to these performances. So I'm not going to go into that massively. And if and if you're not a patron, you can become one, and then you'll get that episode. <laughs> That's one of the many perks of being a patron for which we thank you but yeah like Sean's of the same opinion is that we're, we're so accustomed to extraordinary performances being explainable by doping mm. that it's difficult not to do the same thing here and mm. I, I think actually we must be careful not to be distracted by the tech and say well now that means there's no doping you know it's not one or the other mm. but I do think most of what we've seen in the last few weeks in the track middle distance can be explained by what shoes do to performance mm. No, I mean, what, what do we what do we know about the shoes? Because if you go online and you put in, you know, I look actually looked at this Faith Kipiego's um, track shoes. There's there's actually nothing. Mm. I mean, we know she runs runs in Nikes, and we know that there are certain track shoes that you can find on their website. But was she running? Do we know if she was running a prototype? Um, and if she yeah. was. Can somebody else buy that shoe and compete with it? I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of marathons. When these shoes first hit the marathon scene, Nike was the first person to do it. The only group that had them was Nike athletes. Yeah. So mm. suddenly, if you weren't running a Nike, you were disadvantaged. Obviously, lots of brands have caught up now. But at the moment, it seems that you can pretty much wear anything on your foot if you're an elite track athlete. Well, and if you're a disadvantage if you're not running in as, the best. As I understand it, the World Athletics Policy applies to both road and track and mm. it's states in there amongst its other requirements that your stack height has to be a certain limit below a certain limit and there's there's certain regulations around the plate like you can't have overlapping plates and so forth they've also got a statement in there that the shoe must be available to other participants and mm. then you're not allowed a prototype now there's obviously like some loopholes around that because you could have a shoe that I couldn't walk into a shop anywhere in South Africa, but if I knew the right person, I could probably buy it online and have it shipped, you know, that kind of thing. So now is yeah. that a prototype or not? Yeah. I got some correspondence from some of the listeners and followers on social media saying that Kipiagon and Ingebrigtsen and Germa were all wearing a prototype Nike Spike. I don't think it's a prototype as in it came out of a lab in April and it's mm. only them, but I think it's probably what they mean by it is it's their newest version available only to their sponsored athletes and that's what is driving those performances. Therefore, I don't know all that much about it. I'm sure someone in the world mm. does. All we know is that it'll be the same thing. It'll be that P-Bax foam and a carbon plate and they've, mm. they're just, at this point, they're just tuning the system. They're just changing the curve. They're changing the density. They're changing the, the drop maybe, yeah. changing the length of the plate. I don't know, but they're doing something because Sean told me again, and this is on the patron exclusive, he talks about it in more detail, that other coaches with non-Nike athletes are also saying that their shoes, their, com their athlete shoes are coming up with mm. version two, version three, version four, and they're predicting further drops in time as a result of tech gains. Mm. Just, to so, own, just to wrap up those records uh, before we continue, Faith kept Yegon running 14.05.21, which is just blows my mind. The craziest thing about that, though, I, did, mm. I don't know if you watched it, was I didn't they've got these at comrades. <laughs> and we'll, 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 I suppose this is a segue maybe into some of the other things that are also in play. 
is if you watch Diamond League races now, you'll see lights on the inside of the track, on that yeah. rail. Those lights are being set at a requested pace by, I guess, Kipyagon or, or in this race, Gide was the Ethiopian who came second. So the athlete says, I want the lights to show me 14.10. That's what they did, 14.10. So then they know where they are in relation to their goal time. So like at 1K, they can say, okay, I'm level with the lights. I'm on course for 14.10. That world record, they were behind that light until about 250 to go. So she wasn't even on 14.10 pace with the last 200 meters coming up. And so her final six, her final lap was 60 seconds and her final 200 was under 30. Mm. She was so fast at the end that you have to look at that and say, if those lights are set at 13.59, she could probably hang on to them enough to go under 14 minutes. Mm-hmm. That 14, the point I'm making is that that 14.05 is quite a big underperformance because nobody should have that finish in them at the end of an of a optimally paced race. Yeah. Or Guido will go under 14 soon, but that record won't last more than a year. Mm. Is, the, is what I'm Because they know they have something left in the tank at the mm. end of that. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Personally, I hate those lights. <laughs> yeah. So there's an interesting <laughs> one, right? Absolutely and detest that. It takes away from what the sport really is about. But anyway. So the question is maybe what, I'm too why, old school why does for that. It, so let's, let's, do, let's do it from both perspectives. Why, why does it help? Okay. So the, the reason it helps is mm. because when you are at that level and you're trying to run that time even off even being off by second decay hurts you mm-hmm. like that's how precise the physiological system is at that level if they if they go out and like i can think of now the 3000 steeplechase they're saying okay we need 236 a k if he goes 234 235 mm-hmm. he blows mm-hmm. so it's like literally one second out of 156 is is the margin of error yeah <laughs> and the light means that you don't need to worry about it anymore Mm. because all you got to do is stay within three or four meters of that front, the, f- the first light. Yeah. So the, the cognitive, conscious, emotional burden is now zero. Yeah. Unless you don't like the stress of having to keep up with the light, then you'll be a non-responder to lights. Yeah. But then the physiological implication is that you can now almost run exactly the optimal physiological race for your, for your, mm. for your performance targets. And so that's, mm. that's a significant advantage, yes. Have they got rid of pace setters? No, they still use them. Yeah. But yeah, spaces, it just goes and keeps up. And they'll say yeah, like... got both. I mean, Goma was running, they showed the speeds, 24k an hour. Yeah. I suppose at that speed, you could argue that there's a slight drafting benefit. And so you want... Mm-hmm. But Goma, Goma took the lead. I saw that race again. Goma took the lead at 3 minutes 20 into that race. He ran mm-hmm. more than a half of it all by himself. And in the mm-hmm. past, that would have been difficult because now the guy's like, oh, do I need to slow down? Do mm-hmm. I? Now he just has to say, I'll keep up with the lights. So that's definitely going to help them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a, it's nowhere mm-hmm. near the margin, magnitude of the shoe benefit, but it's definitely a benefit. Yeah. A mm-hmm. couple of questions, actually, because, again, Sean and I discussed this in the Patreon exclusive podcast. And in response to that, Melton Boy on Patreon, one of our followers, thanks for your, your patronage, says two questions. Is Wavelight now legal? Yes, it is. There was a there was a time when it was debated, and then Seb Co actually came out and said, "No, he's quite happy, and he thinks it adds to the entertainment of the uh, to the value of the entertainment product." Mm. I'll get your thoughts on that in a moment. And then the second thing, uh, Malton Boy asked, "Is how does the mathematics work? Do they set it at a constant pace, or do they follow the pace of the athlete who ran the previous record?" Now, you could program that thing per 100 meters, I bet you. You could say, I want this 100 to be 14 and a half seconds. Then I want it to be 15 and a half mm. for the next 600s. You know what I mean? Like, but yeah. for now, 
And certainly in that steeplechase race, they just set it at even pace. They mm. say, what's the world record? Divide by three, that's the K pace. Mm. And it stays mm. at one at one speed. Mm. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, okay, so you hate it. I, I understand the entertainment value to it, absolutely. And I think there is some element of advantage there because if you're a spectator watching either at the event or watching on television, you know, when that, and it happens in swimming. We often see that in swimming. We see the, the red line ahead of the swimmers and you know whether they're close to world record. That's for TV viewers now. That's for TV yeah, viewers, yeah, yes. Yeah, they don't, the yeah. swimmers don't get that. Right. And that's right. the point I'm trying to make. Uh-huh. I think it's great to be able to watch that on television, but I think there's a purity about athletics and particularly <laughs> track and field athletics which make which should make it less mechanical. And it's a bit like, the only way I could probably explain it the best is when we used to watch Chris Froome on the Tour de France looking down on his watt meter and saying, can I go or can't I? And always asking permission from his cycling computer whether he could go or not. <laughs> this does the same thing. It, it, does, it takes away the human reactive emotional element yeah. of at sport and just turns it into a mechanical thing, which yeah. I think is not what it's about. And we've discussed often that the pace setters that we see in events like the Diamond League compared to events like the Olympic Games and the World Championships where those don't exist means that at those championship events we get better races at those other events there's the search for constantly running faster times I think athletics this is just my view any kind of athletics is more entertaining when you look at the race rather than the times I don't really care whether the world record's broken what I want to see is a good race yeah actually. so <laughs> so I'm on the same side as you here but I will say that in my in my talk with Sean the other day like I was I was playing the same role in the context of tech and listeners mm. of this podcast will know like I really don't like what the shoes have done to it mm. because okay in the beginning it skewed it because unless you had the Nike shoe you were at a massive disadvantage now in theory other brands have caught up like hint reader they haven't really like i still think that there's data actually the nike shoe is a little bit better than the others still on average mm. but the bigger issue is the respondent on responder one like there's a paper came out mm. uh, towards the end of last year by Uber et al and they tested eight different super shoes and they showed individual curves for all the runners there's one runner here and i'm, li- I'm re- looking at this graph right now who wearing a pair of hokers uses 6.4 percent more oxygen than when they're in a pair of asics so that's a that's a six and a half percent difference in VO two, which we estimate would equate to about a four percent performance difference. Sure. So that that runner is four percent different from themselves, mm. and there's another runner who, in the same two pairs of shoes, is exactly the same. Mm. So what this is saying is that if you randomise these shoes, you change the result between those two runners, which is nonsense. That's not what running's supposed to be. No. So that that comes back to the purest side. But in talking to Sean, the point I was getting to is I sometimes feel a little bit like an old man shaking my fist at the clouds. Yes. Saying in my day, this is how it used to be. <laughs> so I do think we have to be we have to be a little bit careful about that. But I, I reckon I reckon the compromise between wave light and and not none is where you say every second diamond league in each distance race is an unpaced race. No wave light, no pacer. Hmm. And every even distance race hmm. is a paced one with both. Then I mean, let them do good because that way. Rome 2023 is a paced 5,000. I'm going to see a fast time. Mm. Next year, I'm going to come back. I'm going to see a tactical race. And then mm. athletes can pick and choose how they want to go about it and That's so it. forth. I, but, but then I don't know that athletes want that. Because tonight, for instance, as we sit here, Oslo is tonight. And Inge Britton is running a 1,500. And he says he's not going for the world record, but he wants to do 327. The world record's 326, so <laughs> that seems mm. a bit precise to me, first of all. I reckon he's going to go for the world record. Yeah. But also, 
he he could well say, I want to prepare for the Paris Olympics where I'm not going to have a pace setter. And I want to do half a dozen 1500s this year and next where I just don't have any pace mm. setting and I want to learn how to run a tactical 1500. Mm. But they don't do that. Mm. And I don't know if it's them or the meat organizers that's driving that agenda. But I imagine that having experienced myself being to a couple of events overseas, I remember going to the Weltklasse in Zurich, and there is this absolute competition between the various Diamond League events to see which one produces the best right. results. So there is this fascination, there is this push towards like, oh, well, Zurich's got the best you know, middle distance records, they've yeah. got the most world records in history. So there is that competition. And- and Paris will market itself for the next five years on the basis of what happened in Paris yes, Friday night. Absolutely. Like they'll say, this is the meeting. Three world records in one night. Yeah. Pay your money and come watch records 100%. being made. A set, you know? I just wish you could say, so, pay your money and come watch a good race happen in front of you. Yeah. It doesn't translate so well in marketing speak, does it? Yeah. Sean, Sean said that at the meeting, it was he said what struck him about the crowd was how young they were and how apparently new to athletics they were. So there is this paradox, I suppose, or dilemma Whereas the sport attracts new people, it has to feed their desire to see notable headline performances, not tactical races. Yeah. So I'm afraid we're going to be left staring at the clouds, you and I. Yeah. It feels bit, that way. Maybe we're just too old. Even though I'm younger than Seb Coe, who's made the, the decision <laughs> for it. So. But Seb Coe is right in the heart of that incentive <laughs> challenge that you just mentioned about yeah. how do we get new people to watch this? What's going to make the headline? Yeah. Faith Kipiega and Artsprin Skido to win in 1439. Mm the 74th fastest time of all time, or Faith Kipiega on breaks world records. It's pretty I think clear rivalries what they want. attract crowds more than times. But they do, and that's another problem. <laughs> anyway, let's we can go down that tangent exactly. as well. But just on the records, again, you know, we, we spoke the last, the last time we saw batches of distance world records, because Paris was the week after Rome, which is where Kibiagon mm. broke the 1500 world record and where I mentioned earlier we saw 13, 12, 12 or 13 men break 13 minutes in the 5k. Mm. The last time we saw this depth and quality in distance running was the late 90s. Mm. World records fell 3,000, 1,500, 5,000, 10,000. Mm. In fact, between 1996 and 1998, the 10,000 world record was broken about five times. Yeah. Remember, Turgat, Gabri Selassie, Salah Hissu. I mean, who even remembers that guy's name? Yeah. Gabri Selassie again. Mm. And so when, and, and, and before that, the, the, the most recent batch of world record epidemics was the 80s in women's track and field. Well, the early 90s was the Chinese. Actually, you're right. There's mm. one before that. There was the Chinese. Yeah. And there's only one great. record there remaining, and that's the women's 3,000. And that's you've right. got to think Kip Yagon's going to say, well, I got the 15 mm. and I got the 5. Now, it was the turtle blood that the Chinese <laughs> were drinking, apparently. 300k yes. a week. Easy, yes. easy. No problems. <laughs> Anyone can do that. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So, you had the late 90s. And, okay, we don't know for sure, but that was the peak of EPO. Mm. Remember, like... Okay, switching sports. That was Pantani, Ulrich, Veronk, eventually mm. Armstrong, Reese. I mean, it was mad. Mm. No testing for EPO. Reese was glowing. Yeah, no testing for EPO, no monitoring of blood parameters of the passport, nothing. So mm. doping was like, it was. Be, it would be logical. You would dope. Mm. You'd be an idiot not to. Why not on the track, right? So the, I think all those performances you've got to regard with a mm. fair dose of suspicion. The 93 one, okay, they, and they were never tested positive, but we all know. And then yeah. before that, the 80s. And yeah. those records still survive. Mm. Yeah. Most of those, the 200, 100, 200, 400, 800. 
all still date back to the 80s. So even technology has not been strong enough to take those records. And so that's the interesting thing. And Joshua <laughs> Stacey, who's another one of our patron VIPs, really lively on the comments. And thanks for this. He said, uh, always wondered exactly what the difference is between heavy doping, e.g. the 80s in women, and men, but especially women and testosterone, versus the exponentially increasing advances in sports science, nutrition, and training. And we can see it's about 20 years. So why does he say that? Because 20 years is what it's taken for tech, plus sports science, nutrition, recovery, sleep, all the legal stuff to bridge the gap that was created when athletes used EPO in the late 90s. Women's records from the 80s still haven't been bridged. So 40 years Mm. worth of knowledge, sports science, sports medicine, Mm. tech, recovery, Mm. pillows, (laughs) and whatever else, haven't yet overcome what testosterone did to women's performances. Mm. Men's, yes, but not women's. So that's interesting. So the answer to Josh's question is that in EPO terms, 20 years, in testosterone terms, 40 to 50 years for women. So what we can say is that testosterone is worth more to women than EPO was to men. Mm. And that, but those records will go. Eh? The women's 800 in Paris, Hodgkinson ran 155 low. Athing Moo from America hasn't lost to Hodgkin, Keeley Hodgkinson, Hodgkinson yet. And she ran a 144 odd. They're still a second off it. But the yeah. only athletes who've come close to that world record, as we know now, are the DSD athletes like Semenya and Jalimo and... Yeah. Uh, Saba. So in time, we'll get there. So Mm. you you can almost judge the quality of doping by how many Mm. years it takes for normal practice. The assumption, of course, being that we're seeing normal practice without doping now. And I don't (laughs) think that's true either. So that's the other problem is... Like, my brain, my brain is getting tired just listening to this discussion. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking I'd lie. <laughs> I don't know, where, so, I don't yeah. know where to put myself when I look at these records and understand what the value of them is. But it is, uh, that's why I, I've always maintained that. You talked and you touched on about the '90s, and you mentioned Turgut and Gabriel Selassie, and I remember those events more than I remembered anything else about how Turgut and Gabriel Selassie would race each other to the line. That was what I watched athletics for. That was the breeding ground of my love for the sport. And to some extent, I've gone off that purely because I'm not interested in the solo guy running a marathon, running a record, because it doesn't look anything different from the guy who ran three seconds slower five years ago. Right. You know, that's anyway. Yeah, the, that's my last moan on the subject anyway. No, I'm with you. And the Kibiagon, of the four world records we've seen this season, Kibiagon's mm. 5,000 was by far the best because it was a race. Yes, it was a good race. It was so, a sprint at the end, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't just so, a one-man show, one-woman show. So for show. sure, if you can create those, you in a much healthier situation than yeah. just having... And that's the concern, I suppose. Now, Britson just goes on a tour and breaks a handful mm. of European and world mm. records 30 meters ahead of everyone else. Mm. Cool. But there was, while, while we're discussing this, I want to look it up, but I remember a couple of days ago, somebody shared a Jakob Britson's workout that he did Yes, where he did something that. like 800 meters. Six times eight. Six times 800 meters. A couple of them were around 155, and then the last couple were 149, yeah, 147. So two, 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 what was 155, that? 154, 149, 149. That was his split. <laughs> yes. And it was interesting. There was an interview with him. There was an interview with him. Absolutely insane. I think it was Carl Denning. He interviewed him after the mile world record, uh, two mile world record, and said, Is that true that you've done that? And he said, Well, I did it twice. <laughs> but the because, day, he, because the day that he did correct. it, he didn't achieve the goals and he did it again the next yeah, day. That's he right. repeated it because the first day it didn't hit the targets that he yeah. wanted to and he went and did it again. It's insane, isn't it? So that's, I mean, if you can do that. And the only thing missing from that is the recovery period, right? Like that, yes. session, that session takes on a different meaning if you do it with a 90-second jog as opposed yes. to a 
three minute walk. Yes. But regardless, anyone who can run two 149s at the end of a batch even of six, if it's eight a hundred, five even with gap. five minute recovery, yeah. you know you're in awesome shape. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. so that's why. And the last word on is predict which one's going to go next. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think, I suspect Oslo won't be a world record, but Monaco, mm-hmm. if there's a 1500 in Monaco, the world record will be broken for men. Mm-hmm. If Kipiagon fancies it, she'll get the 3000. Mm-hmm. The men's steeplechase record will go again because I think Bakali is slightly better than Germa. So he'll break that world record, I think. Or Germa will break it again. I thought that was a pretty solid. He only broke it by a second, didn't he? Two, I think just under was two. It, yeah, yeah. It was, there wasn't a big gap, yeah. relatively speaking. So, And it, so, that stood for a while. Yeah, it was almost 20 years. Yeah. So amazing, the men's, so. men's 3,000 has to go. Ingebrigtsen split 7.21 for the last 3,000 of his two-mile. The world record 7.20 for a mm. 3,000. Yeah. So you just tack on a little sprint mm. at the end of it. He'll break that world record mm. too. So I think we could see three or four more this year. Hmm. I know that we actually, I've been trying to get the the, the actual times out now. We got involved in the discussion, but just to wrap up Paris, and there's one more question I want to talk to you about before we kind of finish on the subject. So Faith Gepiegan, we've already talked about her 5,000 meter world record, 3,000 meters steeple chase, 752 by Lameta Germa, and then Jakob Ingebrigtsen at 754 for the two mile. The one thing that I think is interesting, and we discussed it a little bit before our podcast today, is the effect of the track. Mm. Now, we know that Mondo is probably the premium track supplier to all the great events around the world. And they talk about you know the, the, how these tracks are made, all vulcanized rubber. But you were talking about the fact that there's different gradings for tracks. Mm. And we don't really know what effect a, a grade or a grade five track is compared to a grade one. But we know that... A, a good track's going to deliver a better performance. Yeah. We? So Sean was talking about this on that podcast, and he mm. said to me, he told a funny story about listen to that Birmingham. Birmingham, when they were ordering their track for the Commonwealth Games, couldn't afford the top quality one, so they didn't get a five. They got a three or a four or something. So obviously, these it's like you can pay extra for the top of the range, you mm. know, <laughs> you, can get, yeah. you can get all the bells and whistles, and then you mm. get the fast track. Mm. And so, yeah, I, honestly, I've always... I've known about track tech since way back because they used to always market Olympic tracks as being super fast because mm. the Olympic Games were heavily dependent on fast sprint times. Mm. If you could have a world record in the 100, your Olympic Games was made. Yeah. No one was going to see a world record in anything longer than 800 meters, 400 mm. meters. Because there was no incentive. No incentive to run right. fast. So they made the tracks super hard to the point that they were like concrete. And it seems to me from what I've read, and again, massive thanks to Gareth Davies, who is literally our unofficial one-man research team, because <laughs> every single time I post something on Patreon, Gareth is like a gold mine of, I found this link, I looked this up and I found, and he sent me a link to an article that was published by World Athletics talking about the track development ahead of the Tokyo Games. And in that article, you'll read a lot of marketing speak, mm. but basically my summation of it is that they've, They've developed the technology now to the point that they can put different layers or sheets of vulcanized rubber rubber onto one another Mm. in in what's like a honeycomb pattern so that there are little air pockets. So it's no longer as hard as it used to be, but it still gives the restitution or the elastic energy return that it Mm. used to. Mm. Because like intuitively, if you're sitting there listening to this, if if you said like, make me a bouncy surface, Mm. you could have a trampoline. But running on a trampoline is not fast because yeah. you spend too much time sinking. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can visualize what it would be like to run. You'd be running. It's like running on the moon. Yes. You'd sink and then bound. Mm. That's not fast. You want to spend as little time as you can on the ground. 
The problem with spending a little time on the ground is that you you can't generate the forces to go far in between being on the ground. Mm -hmm. So you've got to spend a short time to generate maximum force in order to travel a long way through the air. Mm. And that requires a surface that is both elastic, but also like quite firm and hard. You need a a hard trampoline, (laughs) which Mm. is a paradox. Mm. But that seems to me what Mondo are claiming they've Mm. managed to Mm. do with this new technology of two sheets of vulcanized rubber, honeycombs that trap Mm. air. And then it basically, and they talk about it here. uh, I'll read you the one quote here. Um, Talks about uh, these specific characteristics are vulcanized together and this shows reactivity or push. With the combination of the two, we've reached an ideal combination where the structure provides good absorption. So it's it's softish cushioning to the athletes, but at the same time push and spring when they run. So that's the balance. And it's not that dissimilar. PBAX foam did that Mm. with the carbon fiber plate. By itself, maybe too soft. Mm. Carbon fiber by itself, too stiff. Mm. But the combination is exactly what you need. Perfect, so yeah. it's the marriage of two different elements that have made speed come out of shoes or tracks, it would appear. I mean, you compared that to these cinder tracks that Roger Bannister was running on. I mean, it would yeah. be fascinating to figure out what the difference is between the cinder tracks of Roger Bannister's day to the 1980s tracks, the 1990s tracks, and then see what they're doing now. And yeah. you were saying, but we, we don't really know this, but Harris, this is a suggestion that they newly laid that Paris track. Yeah, that's what so I heard. So it could be the fact that the track has made some significant difference on top of all the technology. Yeah, and maybe this is even a new thing compared to Tokyo, um, Paris. Yeah. And maybe mm-hmm. maybe the Paris track in the Diamond League was a sort of test run for what will mm-hmm. be in the Olympic Stadium mm-hmm. next year. David Epstein's got a TED talk where he talks about human performance and he would have, in order to produce this stack, consult with some biomechanists. And they mm-hmm. reckon 1% was between the cinder track and the modern tartan track. Mm. The problem is the modern tartan track is a is a vague term now because clearly the tartan yeah. tracks are being innovated at a rate like mm. that we haven't seen before either. So yeah. maybe it's maybe Bannister was two percent. Mm. And if that's the case, let's say it's two seconds a lap. Yeah. Bannister was eight seconds faster today than he was in nineteen fifty four. The yeah. same guy running yeah. three fifty one. Yeah. So that, then it's interesting because it gives you a dose of perspective. We've had What's it, 70, 70 years coming on next year, right? Mm. That record will turn 70 next year. Yeah. And over 70 years, you've still got a guy who would be eight seconds faster purely because of the ground he's running on. Yeah. And the world record's only 344. So he's almost halfway to bridging the world record gap purely mm. because mm. of the ground. Mm. The other half is modern tech and maybe doping and recovery mm. and those pillows again. But everything else, <laughs> everything else is the ground. It's amazing mm. to think of, you know? Yeah. Mm. Well, let us know what you think, whether you're following us on our Sports Side Pod uh, Twitter handle or you're one of our Patreon members. Don't forget you can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And look for Science or Sport Podcast and you'll be able to find us there. But of course, we are on Twitter and it's always good to hear your opinions on the subjects we're talking about. So let's move on to a, another subject. Now, I found it fascinating watching the French Open and it's something we're just going to touch on very briefly because here we had a 36 year old Novak Djokovic who establishes the record for the most Grand Slams in history he's officially the greatest of all time among men um, among woman. men sorry yeah, yes, among, my men, yeah. among men yeah, yeah. so he's now got um, 30 
six Grand Slams. No, Tw- sorry, twenty-three. Twenty-three, which is the same as Serena. I'm getting confused with my mountain biking. It's the same. Yes, that's the same as Serena and Margaret Court is one ahead of them. So when right. when and I'm saying this when Djokovic wins Wimbledon, he'll be 24. Yes, and then he'll probably win Wimbledon or French next yes. year, and he'll be on 25. So Djokovic does that wonderful display of classic Djokovic fight and spirit and skill. Mm-hmm. But the most amazing thing is what happened to Carlos Alvarez, the the, the Alcaraz, young, Alcaraz, the, the yeah. 20 year old who suffered from cramps. Now, yes. I've never seen that, and particularly from a guy who is younger supposedly faster, fitter, yeah. got all everything that you would think if anybody was going to cramp it would be Djokovic. Yes. What, what is the modern thinking well, around cramp now? Is it because he didn't eat, didn't eat enough bananas or? So first of all, it was a very, it was a, it was a, an irritating way for this much hyped semi to end. Mm. And it didn't end in the fifth set. <laughs> if you didn't watch this, this was early in the third set. This is the final, yes. No, this was the semi-final. Yes. Where Alcaraz and Djokovic played. Yes, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Alcaraz, because then he, yes, this is why sorry. Alcaraz lost this. He loses 6 1, 6 1, yes. set three and four. That's right. And then Djokovic beats Rude in the final. That's right. This, yes. was the end, this was the beginning of set three. I've seen players cramp in the mm. fifth set in Melbourne when it's into the fifth hour of play and, like, okay, cool, now I get this. Right. But to cramp in the beginning of the third set in, in a player whose reputation, whilst still being developed, is being developed on this foundation of fit, fast athleticism. That was a real surprise. When it happened, I thought that he'd strained a muscle. Mm. Cramp didn't even occur to me. I mm. thought it was a muscle strain. And then he told the umpire that it was cramp. Now, you can't receive treatment for a cramp. It's not an injury. Mm. <laughs> and so he had to forfeit his service game. That's right. If you saw this, that's how he gets his yeah. server. And didn't win another game in the set, right? Because he, he, couldn't, he couldn't move more than three steps. Yeah. Couldn't push off that left leg. It was leg. almost I think comical. It was the left leg yeah. Or right leg. But anyway, he couldn't hit shots properly. Mm. Then I read afterwards that he'd cramped also in his hands and I think back. So I'm like, geez, actually, that's quite a different problem now. Because when you, when you have a cramp or a spasm in a muscle, a local muscle, mm. the thinking is that that's caused by fatigue in that muscle. Mm. And what then happens is fatigue messes up the normal regulation of muscle contraction. Mm. So, you know, when you, you've probably seen when you go to the doctor and he puts your knee, your one leg over the other, and then he taps the front of your knee with his little hammer and your foot jerks out. Yeah. He's testing your reflex, right? Mm-hmm. It's called the spindle reflex. Mm-hmm. And basically, what happens is as you tap it, you cause the muscle to lengthen. And in response, there's a reflex that to protect the muscle from lengthening too much, it contracts. And that's why your foot flicks out, right? Yeah. There's another one on your ankle as well. It's called the ankle withdrawal reflex. Oh, okay. There's another, so, so that's, the one, that's the one reflex that controls your muscle activation. There's another reflex called the Golgi tendon reflex, which prevents your muscle from being loaded too much. Mm-hmm. So it causes your muscle to stop firing, right? Without going into like massive detail, and we can potentially explore this in a, in a separate de- episode dedicated to cramps. With fatigue, it appears that that normal balance between muscle lengthening and muscle contractioning is contracting is messed up mm. and the consequence is that the muscle contracts when it should lengthen or it should do nothing uh, and then you get a seizure of the muscle and that's the definition of a cramp of involuntary spasmodic painful muscle contraction okay and that's why 
Cramps are much more common when the muscle's in a shortened position. Swimmers cramp in the calves. Have you ever had that? Yes. Only time I've ever cramped Sometimes is Sometimes when I'm sitting on the couch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exertionally. Yeah. Um, the only time I've ever cramped is swimming. I don't cramp but, mm. but in my calf because now your toe is pointed. And because your toe is pointed, it's because your calf muscle is contracted mm. and it's in that short. It often happens if you're doing tumble turns and then you, as you kick off it. That's the vulnerable kick. position. So it's yes. in the process of shortening that muscle, mm. you cause this autonomic dysregulation or mm. reflex re- dis- dysfunction. So that's that's the thinking about it. Now, th- there's like loads of other theories around, for instance, electrolytes and so on. It's, it's really interesting. If you go to the finish line of marathons, a lot of this was done in the aforementioned Comrades Marathon and the Two Oceans, you will find one in 20 athletes has some cramp, some severe, some not so bad, but the muscles either close to or cramping. And you measure the electrolyte levels in those cramping athletes. They are no different to the athletes who have no cramp problems at all. Okay. So there's nothing in the, in the high-level electrolyte levels that suggests that cramping is caused by, say, sodium depletion, magnesium, potassium. Yeah. And that makes sense, actually, because when we sweat, we sweat out far more water than we do salt. Mm. You know, our, our sweat is hypotonic. It's, our, our sweat is much less salty than our plasma. So... Mm. The only consequence of sweating is that we lose fluid disproportionately to salt. And what's left behind tends to become even saltier. Mm. So most athletes who finish endurance events, they've got higher sodium concentrations than when they started. Mm. So this idea that you can lose salt to cause cramping just never seemed to work. Mm. I I wouldn't discount that there might be something at a molecular level, like right in the muscle cell, magnesium, calcium, and so on, that could cause that. But generally... Electrolyte depletion, low sodium, for instance, hyponatremia, Mm. that doesn't cause specific muscle cramps. That causes the whole body to cramp up. In hospital settings, Mm. if someone's got low sodium because of kidney or adrenal or whatever malfunction, cramping, systemic cramping, like every single muscle in the body is as often as presentation of that condition. That's not the same thing that's happening during exercise. Yeah. So there's no support really for the electrolyte theory for cramping in exercise. And there's a lot of products out there, obviously, push themselves as in magnesium supplements very much in the sport category with the idea that people believe that. Yeah, and people take them and say that it yeah, works for them. And absolutely. there's no prune juice, for instance. There's a, there's a systematic review on cramping or a narrative review. I'll, I'll again post the links in the show notes. And they talk about some evidence that taking prune juice can prevent the onset of cramps. Mm. Now, again, I, I don't fully understand why that would even work. I, I can't see mm. that you're delivering sodium to the muscles or to the neuromuscular junction and so on in a way that would prevent that. Mm. Maybe, again, it's like maybe you get different categories of cramp. And what, what seems to have happened to Alcaraz is very localized muscle cramps. But then when I read that it was in the hands and in the lower back and so on, I'm thinking, well, mm. maybe, maybe Alcaraz had something more than just an exercise-associated muscle cramp. Yeah. One anecdote is th- almost 30 years ago now, 25 years back, Creatine kinase was all the rage. Remember, there was a time mm. when schoolboys and yeah. rugby players were using this creatine kinase. But you sting it, yes. It was massive. Yeah. And I know a story in the late 90s of a professional rugby team that started using it, and they thought they'd take it at half time to top up the fuel stores of creatine. And within 10 minutes of running back on the field, 10 of the 15 players cramped mm. everywhere in their bodies. So that's an example of how taking some stuff can cause cramping. Is it possible that Alcaraz takes a supplement or some kind of thing before the game? And then call- Yes, it's possible. We don't know that. 
So it's very difficult mm. to know. He himself says the cramps were caused by nerves. And I think this might be something lost in translation. Because in his post-match interview, he talks about the cramps and were the result of tension and nerves during the match, which he described as something he'd never experienced in his life. He talks about how he knew he was playing a legend of the sport, not easy to play against him. Um, and he went on the court with lots of nerves. I suppose that could cause tension. So these normal movements mm, are, right, yeah. you know, he's, he's working against this internal resistance of mm. tension and that causes fatigue more rapidly than would mm. otherwise be the case. Mm. I don't know. Mm. But no one, no one really knows about cramping. I'm, I will say, I, I was, I was really surprised to see a guy at that level cramp that early in a match. There's a couple of things that the commentators said that were, were quite interesting, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. First of all, they said that the first two sets were overly intense. In other words, they were playing at a very high level, which I guess watching it they were, but no more intense than a lot of those French Open. Yeah type of games. I will say the last four games of the second set were very intense, Mm. but I don't think unprecedented level of intensity, unprecedented level of intensity. I agree with you. They were were hard, but not like, like, and again, it wasn't the last four games, the fourth set in the fifth hour of the match. It was the third hour of the match. It's early on. Yeah. And the second thing what I had a bit of a giggle about was uh, when the commentator said, well, he just needs to get into a cold bath. Yeah. I thought, well, if he's going to get into a cold bath with cramps, isn't he going to cramp more? Well, I, I just don't think it would do anything. He would yeah. just feel really cold and maybe he would mm. stiff. You get stiffer. Like there's no doubt yeah. you get stiff in cold ice, ice mm. water mm. because your joints and your muscle nerve conduction so, velocities yeah. and so on. So, yeah, that's all nonsense. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff about cramp that. Yeah, yeah. The only, the, literally the only thing you can do with a cramp is stretch it. And hope that the muscle recovers. Mm. It's, it's really the only things you can and, do. And um, what's interesting, completely anecdotally, a good friend of ours who cycles with us, he used to, we have a hill on one of our courses, which we call Cramp Hill, because this particular individual, <laughs> anything more than 60 kilometers, he would cramp on that hill on the way home. It was literally probably a kilometer away from our finish line. But he hasn't cramped on, as he's got fitter and stronger, he hasn't cramped so- on that hill at all. So we did so, some we did some so fun the theory. Yeah, so we did some fun research once at Ironman and it's imprecise for reasons you'll shortly understand. We we asked everyone who entered to predict their times in the swim, the bike and the run. Mm. And what we found is that the people who started the swim, the bike and the run at paces faster than their prediction were significantly more likely to cramp than athletes who started slower than their prediction. So what does that tell you? That tells you that if you go out a little harder bit harder than you, than you know your body is. And that, that's the loophole, right? It's how, you do you really know what you can do? Like nine, 180K bike course, you, you guess seven hours. It's mm. windy, so you did seven, tw- you know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. there's, there's error in this. But the principle is that people who push harder than they themselves anticipate they're capable of are more likely to cramp. Mm. Cramps are more likely when it's hilly than when it's flat. Mm-hmm. Cramps are more likely in a race than in training. You know, and it's not like in training session, you do a four or five hour long run. Mm. You're going to be, for an ultra marathon runner, you're going to be at the same sodium depletions as you would be after a marathon. Mm. Yet you cramp at the intensity, not the... Yeah. So, so more likely than not, cramp is a neural failure that is a consequence of fatigue and not mm. a electrolyte mm. or anything mm. disturbance. And that example of cramp hill is exactly that. You, mm. the, the best way to prevent a cramp is to condition differently. Mm. Which brings me on to Alcaraz, because this kid is amazing. 
Like, and he's been hyped up as the guy who's going to break Djokovic's record. Oh, yeah. He's... If he doesn't change something in his physical preparation, he's not going to make six Grand Slams, let alone 26. Yeah. Because he just, that's my prediction. As much as I enjoy watching him play. Mm. He's got a good, he, yeah, he, he's he, got an interesting way of playing and he, th- he mixes it up a lot. So he's yeah. great entertainment. He's entertaining and he he does seem to be athletic, but, but he... He has now missed more Grand Slams than he's made Grand Slam finals mm. due to injury. Mm. Okay, and maybe this is not classified as an injury, but he didn't play the Australian Open this year because of an injury from the US last year. I think he missed last year's Wimbledon. He missed a couple of tournaments earlier this year between Australia and the French because of injury. Mm. He missed a couple of tournaments towards the end of last year ahead of the US Open because of injury. He, I would be very worried if I was working with him that a 20-year-old is this injury prone already. Yeah. Yeah. That should not be the case. Maybe and he's so, just still getting strong. Maybe may, his body's still developing. Right. But if you develop through one injury after the next, mm. you are laying down patterns for injury into the future. And I, I would be, again, I'd be really concerned if I was among his coaching staff that he's overplaying and he's asking too much of his body. Because whatever the case is, his conditioning is not is not at the level it needs to be to allow him to play the way he wants to play. Mm. That's the, that's the reality yeah, at the that's moment. A good so, summary of it, and he's, he's, he's either got to play less, or he's got to start becoming smarter and not chase hopeless situations. Because <laughs> mm. towards the end of that second set against Djokovic, he was on a string, and Djokovic was moving him from left to right, from left to right. Every other player would have lost the point three shots before Alcaraz, mm. but he still loses it mm. nine out of ten times. Mm. He wins one out of ten, and everyone says, "Look at this spectacular!" And it is. Mm. But like that's not sustainable. No, Federer is mm. not chasing those ten balls. Even Djokovic wasn't. Mm. Nadal did, and look how many tournaments he missed with injury. Yeah, I, I think I just think his his training is not going to allow him to play the way he wants to play. Yeah. And if you don't change it, he's gonna he's gonna massively underperform against his abilities. I think. Yeah. 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 Anyway, for you tennis fans, it's always lovely watching Djokovic, and uh, I'd really miss the days of Federer Djokovic finals. Um, that was those were great days in tennis. It's a wonderful know that I could watch those events. But as you say, maybe the new generation will be just as spectacular as the older generation. You know, we, we always say Pete Sampras was the greatest ever in the nineties, and now he's fourth in the all time list. So. Yeah, I mean, look how it's going in cycling. Every generation <laughs> yes. is the best ever. Yes, that's true. Well, let's yeah. just touch on a couple of cycling things for those of you who love the two wheels. First of all, it was significant this last weekend when Nina Schurter broke uh, Julian Absalon's record. Um, was it? 36 there it is um yeah 36 sorry 37 he's, yeah so you were 34 world cups now he's 37 so he's he's 37 years of age Djokovic by the way is 36 um and he's done 34 world cups and it's taken him a year to get that record he equaled Absalon's record at the beginning of the season in 2022 and it's taken him to the relatively to the beginning of the season on his favorite course in Lenzerheide to break that record and again a guy who's got a lot of experience, the young crowd coming through to challenge him, but still dominating. So, you know, it just proves that the longevity of people in cycling, which is a really, I mean, mountain biking, particularly cross country, you would think it was a sport designed for the youngsters. Yeah, which is interesting because there's it's not the only sport where you see old fellas and women mm. successful now that you, I feel like you didn't see before. Mm. I'm always aware that I might be making that same mistake, you know, where people say, this is the wettest, coldest winter we've ever had. Yes. And every single year is because it's the recency effect, you know, it's the one, it's the one, you you, yeah. the one you're currently in yes. with your, standing there with your toes cold. <laughs> it makes you think that. 
true. But I do, I do think, and it would make for an interesting statistical analysis to look at the, not just the age of the oldest, not, not just the age of the winner, but kind of like the mean and the median age and the age of the average age of the top 10 and see if that's shifting up in time. Because mm. I feel like it is. You know, I'm thinking tennis, you just mentioned Djokovic is 36. He's won 11 Grand Slams since he turned 30. I think I heard the stat. Okay, yeah. And Take I, reckon, I reckon before that, no one was winning Grand Slams much after 30 at all. Mm. Federer was in his late 30s. Nadal is 36, 37. Mm-hmm. Serena Williams was playing into her 30s. Mm. So like, I feel like it's, it's, it's the same situation there. I remember swimming, there was a 50-year-old at one of the Olympic Games. The Dana, was it, it wasn't Dana Volmer. She was the butterfly swimmer, just one of the others. Mm. I remember at that point, they, they had a 15-year-old on the team, Missy Franklin, and they had a 50-year-old on the team. <laughs> so it does feel to me sometimes like the spread is increasing of yeah. the ages at which you can succeed. It used to be a narrow band at which you peaked, and that doesn't seem like it's the case anymore. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it seems that Scherter, to some extent, is capable of sort of upping his game. Just when... You feel like the new generation is starting to push through and he's challenged like he was last year, not able to win another World Cup for the entire rest of the year. But he comes back in a year where you think, oh, maybe he's going to retire this year. No, he doesn't. He wins Lenzerhard and breaks the record. So he seems to be able to adapt his training, up his game. And just because he went and Lenzerhard absolutely flat out, very aggressive and almost intimidated the, 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 the rest of them to the point where second was always a fight, but he was so far ahead in first. So there's a reputational element to his ability. Mm. If you can beat Shirty, you've done something special. When he attacks, they worry they can go with him. Psychologically, I think he has a hold over those Plus young te- athletes. Technically, he's so much better. It's actually better, amazing. Yeah. There's actually on Instagram, there's an account called How the Race Was Won. Mm. You, you know, as well, eh? Cosmo Catalano. And yes. He takes Scherter going through two of the more technical elements of that course, mm. and he split screens it with the guy who came second or third or something, and you can visibly see a bike length at each technical point. Which is something so now, 800th of a second or something. Yeah, yeah so yeah. Yeah, you've got to make up a bike length. Now where? On the climb? Yeah. Well, okay, imagine how many more watts that's costing. So that's, that's definitely part of it. I, th- I thought it was quite a nice way of illustrating his technical mm. superiority. Yeah, he definitely has that for sure. Yeah, so I... It would be interesting to know, like, and that's where sometimes on the sports science research, like the guy's been around what fifteen years. What would he have started at twenty one? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like forever. You know, you think about shirts, you think I can't really remember. I can't remember the Julian Epstein times. I just remember shirts. Yeah, same. You know, wouldn't a cool uh, paper be to look at the uh, a qualitative and quantitative description of a world class mountain biker's training over fifteen years of competition? Yes. Like, how many k's did he do? In 2007, 2012, 2017, and 2023, in May, June, and July yes. every year, and what proportion that was done above each of his his threshold? How did his threshold change? Maybe his threshold has come down, but he's just become better at using it at the right time. So there's so many things that could explain how that final outcome, that one hour, 17 minutes, and 36 seconds, or whatever it is, I don't, I don't know what the time was, how that's achieved, you know. And it would be interesting to look at that. And I think, well, I just remember who I was talking to about this. I think it was, in fact, it was Annemiek from Fleerton. We were talking in an interview with her on bicycling, where she was talking about the older she gets, the harder she has to train and the more distance she has to do. Not because she's trying to make up for her age, but because she's more capable of doing that. People would say the older the athlete, the less training they have to do because they've got muscle memory and history. Her suggestion was 
her body needs more stimulation now because it's been doing it for so long to keep getting better. Yeah. So yeah. It's, the, it's almost counterintuitive to what you think an older athlete would do. Has the quality of her training changed? Because the, the, the traditional thinking in the exercise physiology space is that as you get old, the, the changes, the, the negative changes that aging causes are things like your VO2 max comes down. And so the training response that would best counteract or slow down the aging effect would be more high intensity training. Yeah. So for instance, you lose muscle mass, you know, because you've only got a limited number of uh, muscle cells that can, satellite cells that can actually regenerate muscle. So your, your, your muscle mass and your muscle volume go down. So therefore, higher intensity strength training is an effective anti-aging training device. Mm. Similarly, higher intensity endurance cardiovascular work is better than doing long, slow, speed and distance. So mm. I'd be curious to know that if, if Van Floyten and she was doing big distances, let's call it 600 yeah. a week, she always right? She has done a lot of distance. Like, is that in the ballpark? 500 a week? Yeah, she's probably, she does about twenty five to 30,000 Ks a year, yeah, which is so. high, on the high level for male so, professionals. So for the sake of numbers, 500 K a week. 15 years ago is, of those 500 Ks, was 50 of it high intensity. Yeah. Now she's doing 550, but 80 of it is high intensity. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe she's. Know. That would be interesting. You see, there's yeah. so many. She, questions. she still maintains that most of her training is done at low intensity, even now. But she's sure just up. The, she's just up the volume. Sure, it is. But like again, if you increase by two percent yeah. on a base of five hundred, that's ten k's of really hard riding a week. Mm. That's mm. that's a big chunk when mm. it's applied over forty eight weeks a year. And that's what that's what modern science will tell you that the high intensity needs to be done the older you get purely because you need to build re, try and regenerate that yeah, muscle it's the, most direct, it's the most direct antidote to the mm. aging decline yeah, yeah it's higher yeah. intensity work mm. and weight training work to keep muscle mass up yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's the lesson for listeners I mean you're not trying to break records for titles unless you are. I mean, one of her followers actually on Patreon and Instagram who messaged me is Marcel Guarini, who's always, always looked from on the leaderboards because he's in those races with uh, Shirta. So he might be the only exception. But for the rest of us, higher intensity stuff as we get older, because that's the thing you lose is, yeah. is the higher intensity and the muscle mass. Problem is the one thing you don't want to do. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the most unpleasant one. <laughs> it is. Exactly. I like the long, slow stuff. No, no one said aging is going to get easy. It always <laughs> is easy, exactly. right? So. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, so fi final thoughts. I mean, there's a couple of things we're going to be looking forward to in the next uh, couple mm. of months. Of course, the Tour de France coming up. And with an eye on that, it was interesting at the Giro, and we're kind of looking back a bit here, but we had Rem Remco Venepool pulling out of the Giro due mm. to COVID. Yeah. I thought it was one of the dullest Giros forever because nothing happened for three weeks until the last two days. And then there was a few things that happened, and that was it. It was almost like everything was designed around you know let's just ride and then we're going to wait until the last two days to do anything um S sort of i think they got know. a little bit unlucky with Evanpool's withdrawal yes they did because i think then he would have controlled it for three weeks and then before no but it would, have, it would, have, took it would have provoked attacks at least because because i think i think the bet they made when they designed that course is that Evanpool's going to take the early lead in the gc race mm. And then what that'll do is it'll cause the likes of Roglic and Thomas mm. and the other GC guys who were less capable time trialists to have to attack him in those middle stages yeah. leading up to the last time trial where it becomes a pure man-on-man -man climbing contest. Mm. The moment he went, there was no incentive for anyone to do anything except wait. So they, yeah. they got a bit of, and it was a hell of a boring for those. Like, I mean, they, it looked like they'd neutralized a lot of those mm. Mondays, just had a gentleman's agreement to soft yeah. pedal it to the top. It was really dull. 
I don't know how you change that. Yeah. You know, I think there's a danger in these tours. I used to be a person that would love the tours more than I'd love the classics. I'm, now I'm the other way around now. I'm totally the other way around now. Purely time. because there is this recipe. The, the, the break goes, everybody sits up, the break's controlled, it either goes or it stays, and then there's a fight. Yeah. But, you know, I guess if you're a race organizer, there there's race organizers on the Giro, the Tour de France, the, the Vuelta, and any kind of multi-stage race are probably thinking, okay, we need to figure out how to incentivize better attacks. I always think the Giro used to do that reasonably well because instead of having first week of sprints, second week of hills, and third week of like a combination, they mix it up much more. The Vuelta's yeah. like that. Mm. Whereas Tour de France tends to be formulaic. It's formulaic. Mm. But I do think there's a challenge for those events to keep the entertainment level up by creating an incentive for races to take a chance. And I tweeted about this on my Twitter account. Saying I saw that. I, yeah. I saw, I know. I said, Mike Finch is tweeting. This I know, must be I, a big I deal. I don't tweet that much, but yeah, I did feel quite strongly about <laughs> that because I, I'm, I love watching the tour, but I'm sitting there going, this is just going to be up to the second last day and nobody's going to do anything. How yeah. do they incentivize people to do, how do you incentivize risk? Yeah. Unfortunately, they ended up, yeah, they, they, they put three weeks worth of excitement into 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when it happened, it was exciting because Roglic's dropping his chain and so on. The no. problem is time trials are really hard to watch. No, as they're also boring in product yeah, because you can't relate. No. You can't compare, you know. Mm. So anyway, I, I'm with you. It mm. was dull. And that's why, that's, that's why like, you need, you need a Pogaccia character mm. and a counterfoil to that. When Pogaccia was the only guy two years ago in the Tour de France, super boring also. Because yeah. then it's one guy dominates and then it's dull. The Giro didn't have that problem. It had two very closely matched riders, but it had a course that incentivized them to wait. So you've got, you've got mm. I suppose, two broad problems is one rider can make it boring mm. and, a, and the wrong course can make it dull. So mm. you need the the magic was like mm. last year's tour where you had Vinegar and Pogaccia on a course that incentivized exactly the right thing for entertainment. Yes. And that's going to be probably mm. the... the um, Exception, not the rule. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this year's tour like yeah. starts in the Basque country, and so they've obviously said, let's give them some hills proper, unpredictable, highly variable circumstances in the first three mm. or four days, and see what we can do. Yeah. So, yeah, will that change it? I, I don't know. Uh, mm. It's it 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 could be, depending on the condition of Pogacar with his broken wrist. Mm. It could be really boring if Vinegar's at the level he was in in the Dauphiné. Oh yeah. The Dauphiné was really boring too mm. because he was just so much better than everyone else. Mm. Well, he didn't win the final in Tom Trot, did he? Uh, he didn't, it wasn't no. the final one. It was he the only one. It was a Berg, yeah. It was the only no, time. Right. It was like stage only three or trial, four yeah. or something. Yeah. But yeah, yeah well, he that lost was a that surprise, one. but it was a probably a power time trial rather than a climbing time trial. It was, trial. A, Watts, it was yeah. a Watts monster yeah. time trial, that one, yeah. Cal Berg, I think, won that first time he's won a... A stage on the world tour. Yeah, and then the rest of it is just no one's, everyone's scared. You yeah, know? that's right. Yeah, because you, you attack him and he's just going to counter you and then I suppose it's a losing proposition. I suppose that's the era of professionalism is that the, the, there's always this discussion about risk and reward because, you know, if you risk something, you could drop out of the top 10 and then it's a disaster. But unless you risk something, you necessarily can't win. And I always think mm. in cycling, you have to risk to, to win I've heard otherwise because yeah. Thomas as much as you've got to respect the guy as a rider not the most exciting he's a wheel follower but he still has the ability to when he got 100 metres to go he'll attack but he won't do anything before that he, yeah. he, tends, to, he tends to play a, a, def a defending game rather than one where he attacks right. he's no contador <laughs> no, no, none of them I miss, I miss is, to, yeah. Vingegaard against Pogaccia could be 
because he might have to. Yes. I mean, they did it last year. That was, yes. like I said, that was one of my the best cycling I've ever seen was that Col yes. de Glen on stage where him and Roglic took turns throwing mm. punches and then Pogacar counterpunched and it was mad. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, really good. That's what but, you want to see. That's not mm. going to happen often unless the formula, things have to come mm. together exactly in the right way and the right order for that mm. to happen. So I, yeah, I'm, that's why the classics are, I think, far, far better because mm. I don't, I don't see how you solve it. I've heard some people say you should have two week tours, mm. the length of the tour, but I don't think that would change it. I think no. all that would do is it would amplify the intensity at which the risk reward equation is mm. is calculated. You know, mm. like but but it's still there. You'd still rather wait for the the fourteenth mm. out of fourteen days, mm. where you used to wait for the twentieth mm. out of twenty one mm. days, but mm. because because it's still mm. backloaded where the reward is finally bigger than the risk. Mm. So. Final thoughts, my final subject for today. Um, Vanderpool pulling out of the Giro with COVID. A lot of mm. criticism leveled at him because what are the thoughts? Why should he pull out? Because if he didn't have any symptoms, he surely could have carried on riding. There was all sorts of horrible things said about him. My thoughts were, and his doctor even saying, even said this, why be involved? Why risk a potential heart problem? Because they just, we still don't know enough about COVID to mm. understand what effect it will have on the body. I, I think that was a fair defence, to be honest. I, th- I think that that defence is as applicable to any viral infection. We, we've done podcasts on sudden death in young athletes. And the best statistic for it is that between 9 and 11% of them, sudden deaths in athletes happen because of myocarditis, which is an infection of that muscle around the heart caused by exercising and training with a viral infection. That was that was the case before anyone even thought about COVID. Whether <laughs> no matter what you think of COVID, True. myocarditis was a reality before you didn't accept or reject COVID. Right. Mm. So the the same calculation had to be made in the nineties, the two thousands about what do you do when an athlete has a viral infection. And I guarantee you, your magazines, both cycling and running, have published pieces warning athletes not to exercise with the virus. Now. In an elite athlete, because of risk and reward and the circumstances, they often make the choice to continue through the... And maybe one could argue that the decision-making process has been altered a little bit by the fact that we are now sensitized to viruses in the last four years where we weren't before. But the, but the picture is the same. is You exercise with a virus and you are inviting a risk. And it might be a small risk, but it's still a risk you could have avoided. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. And I, to me, I also couldn't believe the outcry about it i think it says it says maybe more about people's um mental state and intellectual state in the aftermath of covid i think they're rejecting covid not not the concept of a cyclist looking after his health yeah Yeah. so um you know it's and it's interesting like everyone's like why why would they have tested well because he was symptomatic yeah and so they said let's exclude covid but even if even if that covid test had come back negative he would not have finished that Jira if he was as symptomatic as he probably was to be tested in the first place. Yeah. Like, that's what I would have thought. He, he would have slipped progressively down the rankings and by the middle of week two or the second rest day, he would have said, this mm. is actually, I'm not well. Yeah. I've got pneumonia, bronchitis, slash take your pick of a viral infection. I'm, I'm gone. Thanks, yeah. guys. See you, see, you next, yeah. next, see you next year. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it's, 
and and it's that's the reality now is that there's a there remains a set of viruses one of which is COVID and athletes have to be very very mindful of them and respect the fact that that decision in, in fact we're talking about it as death like there's also other consequences where you could lose two years of your professional sporting life to having the fatigue and the just general um, second consequences of having a viral mm. infection. You know, mm. like we've heard a lot of people struggling with what we're loosely calling long COVID, mm. where they just have not recovered after COVID. Why right. would you take that risk as a 20, what's he, 23, 24 yeah, year old? Still a long career. With a decade of, of cycling and you sacrifice 20% of your career yeah. on the basis of maybe I can survive this until mm. week two and yeah. get better. No. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's a, uh, it, it, it may yet come up in the Tour de France. Uh, I've noticed now in all these warm-up races, everyone's got masks again. Yep. And so we are very much back to 2022 era. Um, Luckily yeah. not 2020 and 21, but no. but it's there. So we might as well respect that reality. Yeah, totally. Mm, I yeah. agree with that. My last thought, and yes. this is just, uh, is the, the last, remember last year in November, I was in Amsterdam? Where I got COVID. Yes, <laughs> pretty, that's, pretty badly. That's not why I'm telling you the story. <laughs> but that was for the conference that was held by the Concussion in Sport group. And yes. that consensus statement came out at midnight today, yesterday. Right. One minute past midnight. And so I'll post a link in the show notes. I've already tweeted it. And you can read everything on what the sports experts are saying about concussion. And I'm actually off to Boston on Sunday again <laughs> for... Um, a meeting with some of those concussion experts and we're spending a week there where the experts are presenting to us the long-term effects of repeated head impacts in contact sports and then we'll sounds like a future podcast to yeah me. that's why that's what that's why i'm bringing it up i'm not telling you that so you can yeah. send me postcards or ask for them <laughs> i'm telling you because because at some point world rugby is going to come out with I, I don't know if it'll be a position statement but some kind of statement on the long-term implications of playing rugby and what the strategies are to mitigate those and to support players later in life when they do develop these conditions. And that'll be led by experts. It, it was it was begun in Amsterdam last year and, and we heard from a couple then and now this is the next iteration of that. So that's a that's yeah. a sneak. That's, I'm planting a seed for a future podcast there. But that's, that sounds like a good one. That's the link. Is the, It is an important the, subject at the end of the day, isn't it? Yep, indeed. Right. Thank you very much, Professor Ross Tucker. And uh, thanks for listening in our latest podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Sports SciPod. Of course, our Patreon uh, details we've already given you. But uh, for us, for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Sports SciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport podcast. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com